Part four of Confessions of Two Brothers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Confessions of Two Brothers by John Cooper Powis and Llewellyn Powis. Confessions by John Cooper, Section 4. I have no philosophy not even the philosophy of having no philosophy. By this last remark, I mean that my scepticism is genuine scepticism, not, as so often happens, a mere synonym for dogmatic agnosticism. I do not construct out of my scepticism any system of universal doubt. I doubt even the validity of doubt. I hold myself perfectly free to dally with any kind of metaphysical or mystical interpretation of things which may happen to attract me. I hold myself free to give myself up, in passing, to any religious revelation that may strike my fancy. I hold myself at liberty even to play with what is called faith. Let me try to put down, point by point, how these evasive ultimate tendencies really do present themselves as I disentangle them. I think it may be said that though no rigid exclusion of idealistic interpretations closes absolutely any doors for me, my general bent is towards what is roughly called materialism. I say roughly called because I am not ignorant of the metaphysical and psychological dilemmas implicit in any rigidly monistic system, but at the same time I have never been able to see that the spiritual attenuation, if I may call it so, to which what we roughly name matter has been recently subjected, necessarily implies any support to the claims of the idealists. The world may be full of mysterious living forces. It may have a boundless tendency to burst out here and there into all manner of conscious forms and shapes. It may be prolific of amazing organisms. It may be deep and strange and unfathomable. It may possess levels beyond levels of cosmic entities and inconceivable beings. It may dwindle off into unthinkable spatial planes. But I can never bring myself to see why this quite possible multitudinous of life's pregnancy should be dragged in to support the obviously human-made systems of idealistic or religious comfort. The world may be as deep and mysterious as you will, but that does not in the least imply that we shall have a life after death, or that there is a God, whether personal or imminent, in the least concerned with us. Perhaps what I feel about it is rather what the ancient Epicureans felt. There are very likely gods and demigods innumerable in life's teeming planes of existence, but their own pleasures and their own annoyances are quite sufficient to fill up their time. I am not therefore a materialist in the dogmatic sense, but I lean considering the important part played by what is conveniently called matter in our human sphere to a materialistic view of our own particular fate. It is in fact upon the inscrutable mysteriousness of the world that I take my stand. I find myself constantly protecting, as it were, this large and tremendous mysteriousness 
against explanations which seem to impair its dignity. This is no doubt the origin of much of my prejudice against current theology. It is certainly the origin of my profound suspicion of current science. I want to keep the fresh, formidable, beautiful virginity of the world, if I may be allowed to put it so, unravished by priest or professor. I feel so often as though that indescribable quality which the poets call magic were in danger of being destroyed by these cut and dried idealistic assumptions. The dignity of death is, for instance, absolutely spoiled for me by easy arrogant hopes of joyful resurrection. Even the great Buddhistic theory of successive incarnations seems to me less poetical than the finality touched with a remote, just articulated chance of something else, of the tragic pagan Ave Atquavale. It is really, I fancy, on behalf of this dramatic mysteriousness of things, with its astounding fusion of comic and tragic elements, that I reluct at committing myself to any clear-cut solution. I think it is also because I feel certain that no solution will prove the final one. I experience, indeed, a curious anger against certain clever modern philosophers whose crafty reasoning lends itself to the comfortable uses of optimistic apologists. If such people as these, I say to myself, find support in such theories, then such theories must be wrong. Yes, at the bottom of my mind, I discern an instructive and inevitable assumption that no theory of the universe which anybody has ever had, or will conceivably ever have, can possibly be true. As for the popular Hegelian idea of progressive evolutionary truth, I despise and deride it. The ultimate secret is as far off now as it was in the time of Heraclitus, and I have a suspicion that all who do not confess this are either knaves or fools. I do not carry this scepticism so far as to doubt the existence of what we call objective truth. Such an extreme of the personal method seems to me grotesque and insane. Besides, carried to its absurd limit, it renders all conversation between intelligent beings impossible. Some definite and unalterable relation between the human mind and its natural surroundings must be a permanent thing in our planetary history. Otherwise we should be condemned to the incommunicable muteness of fishes. Pluralism is a pleasant theory to play with, and perhaps has its place. But I must confess that the indissoluble unity of the world of which we form a part is borne in upon me as an axiomatic necessity of my consciousness. The universe may have all manners of layers and levels of divergent life. Its fluctuating waves of being may ebb and flow through incredible varied spheres. But one cannot formulate in thought any gaps or blank spaces there not connected by some sort of delicate ethereal medium. The universe must remain a universe while our mind remains our mind. To call it a multiverse is to use language which makes language impossible. The same thing applies to the rationality of the world. There must be processes, sequences, harmonics and laws in nature binding all things together 
and more or less intelligible to us the children of their creation otherwise no kind of science would be possible though i am so anxious to keep the virginal mystery of the world fresh and unravished i am not now addicted to talk loosely and lightly about the chaotic elements in nature i used to talk in this way but i think it was rather an impatient reaction against idealists than any expression of my own personal feeling i have a rooted prejudice against all syntheses which smell of the pulpit and it is pleasant and consoling to me to think that though there is evidence enough of law and solidarity in the system of things there is not the slightest evidence of such a system being guided or evolved to any definite end or purpose even if such evidence were forthcoming it would still remain extremely improbable that in the vast cosmic orientation whatever it might be there should be any particular consideration for our human wishes and cravings however well the universe may be constructed and however harmoniously nature's laws may work one sees clearly enough that a certain monstrous and lavish waste is an intrinsic peculiarity of the whole system and of this waste of this essential cosmic negligence we may be a self-deluding infinitesimal portion nature may have her own mysterious purposes or she may not in any case our role is bound to be in a dramatic sense that of the fly upon the wheel or to use a more organic metaphor that of the lice in the hide of the rhinoceros there's been too much nonsense lately talked about things being free arbitrary individual and independent of one another i myself reflecting the prevalent fashion have uttered vague words about the chaotic multifariousness of the world i have made much of every trace of the illogical the exceptional the perverse i have sought to discern the presence in things of something incalculable and baffling of something that suddenly leaps up without preparation or any apparent cause out of the depths of the uranian reservoirs it is for this reason that it used to please me well that the modern philosophical catchword should be life rather than matter or motion or mechanical force or than that old unpsychological figment mind in the abstract life though it might not carry us far seemed or i said it seemed much more suggestive than any of these others as a focusing word for the ultimate mystery for it had the advantage of emphasizing the unique arbitrary and personal element in what is presented to us it will be seen from all this that when i spoke of my preference for what i called the chaotic in life i was using the word in the sense of something that was wayward wanton and incalculable not in the old miltonic sense of pre-created debris and dust i blush now to think how far in my casual conversation and lectures i carried this absurd belief that things were chaotic and this fantastic preference for such a world nothing could be really further from my true feeling about the universe nothing could be further from my wish as to what the universe should be i must have been betrayed into this treachery to my own disposition by some species of proud and mischievous spleen 
and by an unconscious following of literary fashions. As a matter of fact, these chaotic forms and shapes, these sudden groupings and miraculous chances of contact, though they seem to have about them all the arbitrary magic of the unknown depths, and to be quite independent of the uniform procession of cause and effect, are really as much a determined part of the whole inexorable stream of things as the most mechanical sequence. Though there be world within world of spiritual or ethereal entities, they are all equally dominated by destiny. They are equally driven forward by the same universal impetus. The smallest fancies that pass through our brain, and the strangest, remotest inhabitants of the farthest star, are alike determined in their nature by a fatality that admits of no interruption or deviation. This does not in the least debar us from giving ourselves up to the exquisite imaginations of artist and poet. Such imaginations are also part of the irresistible unfolding of what has been implied from eternity. We do not know how far they will carry us. We do not know how far our own thoughts will carry us. But both they and our maddest dreams are all accounted for in the terrible, beautiful procession of lives and thoughts, the procession of things and the shadows of things, which is all there is and from which there is no escape. We may use what in our necessary illusions we call our free will to the utmost extent. We may struggle, we have a right to struggle passionately to change our nature, but our nature will never really be moved one hair's breadth from what has been determined for it. And every one of our vaunted new thoughts and new emotions has really been inevitable from the beginning. If we struggle desperately to improve or change, that very will to struggle was what our universal destiny implied in us. And if we do not struggle, that atrophy and inertia also was what the universe intended. I once fancied that I shared with Bergson and James, those plausible sophists, a predilection for the instinctive over the logical. But I now know, falling back upon my real feeling, that it is neither instinct nor logic that can save us from the inexorable pressure of life's fatality. It is quite in harmony with what one experiences in the daily commerce of events, that nature should be, at the same time, driven irresistibly forward and apparently prone to a thousand goblin-like absurdities. It is prone to absurdities. These are not only apparent, they are real. But proneness to goblin-like absurdity is part of the universe's inherent necessity. The universe is both fated and fantastic. One can see clearly why it should strike us in this double-edged manner when one thinks of it as completely indifferent to our personal desires. For just in proportion as we desire fluidity and malleableness, it arrests us with its granite-like immovable weight. And just in proportion as we desire security and stability, it leaps out at us with wanton and ironic capriciousness. This astounding mixture in the system of things, of rigid cosmic laws, and apparent chaotic surprises is precisely what pleases my aesthetic sense and 
the sardonic shocks it gives, on the one hand to optimistic rationalism, and on the other to optimistic pragmatism, fill me with humorous satisfaction. I cannot help it if any gentle spirit protests that such an attitude is one of pure malice. I am not defending myself. There may be malice in it. There may even be a touch of perverse voluptuousness, possibly an absurd element of pride. If so, I can only look with amazement at myself, and observe with psychological interest the odd spectacle of a human being deriving voluptuous and humorous pleasure from the pathetic inability of other human beings to grasp the mystery of life. As a matter of fact, I am convinced that all philosophic attitudes are the result of temperament. Generally the part played by reason is the part of defending and supporting, as cunningly and persuasively as possible, this initial bias. But in certain rare cases it happens that a philosopher summons his reason not to defend his temperament, but to outrage it, lacerate it, and contradict it. In such a case we have a system of philosophy based not upon the pleasure the philosopher gets from offending the natural tastes of others, but upon the pleasure he gets from offending his own. But even here, though so perversely employed, the man's temperament is at the bottom of his method. I do not think, however, that my philosophy is of that kind. At all events, I recognize it as a profound tendency in myself to sweep aside the plausible structures of logical thought which philosophers raise and to dig down with curious psychological zest into the personal will and taste and prejudice of the philosopher himself. For me, as I have hinted, the world of human beings, their character, their predilections, their love and their hate, is a world fatally and rigidly determined, and that is probably why I deal so habitually in patient and ironical agreement, and find it so hard to indulge in argument or controversy. My underlying Spinozism, if I dare call it by so ambitious a name, probably accounts also for my indifference to detail among the exacting transactions of life, and my tendency to let things drift as they will. Why make a fuss when all, at the last, is equal? But beyond and below Spinozism, or any other fatalistic method of reasoning, in which I may love to indulge, lies undoubtedly in my own instinctive conviction that nothing matters, that there is no real human meaning in life at all, and no beginning or middle or end of life's teeming manifestations. All is equal. Those sinister syllables keep up a sort of recurrent tune in the depths of my mind. All is equal. Why then grow agitated and angry because this or that ridiculous human being acts according to his nature? It is, no doubt, out of a sort of willing reaction from the sombre inertia of this mood that I love to dally, as I call it, with the more gracious aspects of religion. Innately I regard religion, the Catholic Church for instance, as a noble and beautiful work of art, constructed anonymously by humanity for its own satisfaction, and offering a lovely and romantic escape from the banalities of existence. 
I am not in the least troubled by its inconsistencies or impossibilities. If it were not superbly impossible, if it did not come flaming in from outside the closed circle, it would not be worthy of the name of religion. A rational religion is a contradiction in terms, and only thoroughly stupid people are interested in such an anomaly. The value to me of this wonderful, impossible invention having appeared at all upon the earth is the fact that its appearance makes one consider once more how extremely likely it is that the real truth of the universe is something amazingly, absolutely different from anything that anyone has dared to dream. Religion, at any rate, must always have this value that it prevents our self-satisfied men of science from closing the door to staggering chances. As the supreme work of art of our race, I have the utmost reverence for religion, and as a protest against barring out incredible possibilities, I regard it with admiration. When, however, it becomes a question of possessing faith, or what is called the religious sense, I must confess to a cold and complete indifference. One sometimes hears worthy people express the view that atheism is an impossible thing, that there can be no such person as an atheist, and that those who call themselves so do not know their own mind or are deliberately indulging in fantastic bravado. I can never understand this view of the case. It seems to me that I am meeting atheists every day, that is to say, people who are not endowed by nature with faith or with the religious sense. For myself, I can only say that, however deeply I search my heart and soul, I do not find the remotest trace of these interesting gifts. Nor do I feel as though I permitted such instincts to perish in me through lack of cultivation. I do not feel as though they had atrophied from disuse, I feel as though they had never been there. I certainly cannot remember them, though I can remember very vividly certain disgustingly hypocritical attempts I made at various times to pretend to myself that they were there. This fact, the fact of one tolerably sensitive person being entirely devoid of the religious sense, is surely not without its significance. It, at any rate, disposes of the argument of the universality of the instinct. I should be untrue to my attempt at getting really to the bottom of my emotions in these things, if I neglected to speak of the curious thrill which the idea of the person of our Saviour always produces in me. I notice that this thrill only occurs when it is accompanied by the notion, as it naturally is with me, of his divinity. The idea of a great good sage going about doing admirable works and finally giving up his life for humanity leaves me absolutely cold. I even feel an odd sense of anger when I hear worthy ethical rationalists talk, as they do, of Jesus and Socrates. That sort of thing freezes my interest like a bucket of ice water. I suppose it is an artistic instinct in me indignant at this clumsy and stupid lack of appreciation for the most wonderful work of art our race has ever evoked. It is precisely the attraction and magic of this figure, 
created a god by the mysterious self-mesmerism of the human race, which causes the thrill which I feel. A merely good man, possessed of an unusual love for humanity, does not particularly impress me. I do not love humanity myself, and I do not feel any particular sympathy with those who do. I am ready to confess, as a proof of my sincerity towards my religious friends, that I cannot altogether explain the thrill that I have referred to. It resembles in character the feeling I have when I read an especially magical line in poetry, the only moment which ever gives me the sensation of tears. Is it an atavistic thing? I wonder, a reversion in me to the medieval emotions of my ancestors. Or is it a purely artistic impulse? I refuse to call it religious, because it is not connected in the remotest way with any need or desire to worship. It certainly is not moral, because I have often experienced it when I was about some deed that had no relish of salvation in it, and it has been accompanied by no shadow of remorse or scruple. Before leaving this interesting borderland of philosophy and religion, I want to say a word about the absence in me of the mystical sense. I know no human being less of a mystic than I am. In this matter, my irreverent and sceptical materialism, if that is the best word to describe it, goes to the extreme limit. Fancies about an oversoul in things, or a anima mundi, always rouse in me images of a comic kind. I see the universe as an enormous sponge through which the spirit, or whatever they call it, pours seething and fermenting like cider out of a vat. The something far more deeply interfused of the words worthy in ecstasy leaves me contemptuously frigid. I am tempted to give to this great pantheistic emotion the grossest and most material causes. I am always driven to associate it with animal feelings of purely physiological well-being. I was not born to be a pantheist. The idea of worshipping God in nature, or worshipping nature as God, has never had the remotest appeal for me. My instincts are all pantheistic, a quite unmystical and perfectly naive worship of the sun, or the moon, or any particular planet, is the sort of thing that I understand and sympathize with. I know what is meant by the phrase cosmic emotion, but I never feel it. What I feel is a perfectly natural and sensual enjoyment of a particular field, or flower garden, or river bank. I do not want these things to lead me to the brink of heaven or to the feet of God. The spiritual raptures of Shelley's ethereal inspiration please me as poetry. But in practice, a curious vein of humorous and cynical realism holds me bound to the earth. In these things, I am frankly and grossly material. What appeals to me in nature, what gives me always the most thrilling delight, is what one has learned to call the magic of her fleeting and evasive charm. This magic, however, has nothing to do with hidden ethical secrets or with hidden spiritual depths. It is not hidden at all. The whole wonder and beauty of it is that it is on the surface. 
it comes and goes it allures and escapes the appeal it makes is not to the mystical sense but to the poetical sense it is the amorous witchery of the earth maidens and the irresistible laughter of the earth gods end of part four